We're thankful, Lord, for the great salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the fact that we, who are the recipients of your grace, have experienced that so great salvation. We pray, though, Lord, that you will give us a deeper and fuller understanding of that which we have in our Savior, that we will come to grips with the reality of his provision, and that we'll be even more grateful than ever as we realize the tremendous care with which you took care of the salvation issue. Bless us richly, then, in these moments that we have together. Help us, Lord, to begin to get a grip on these truths so that we might be able to share them with others, and we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. At the point of salvation, God did some wonderful things for us. In fact, there are at least 36 things that happened that combined provide us with what is called in the New Testament the riches of His grace. And we're talking about these things. We should understand that these are wrought of God. They're not based on human merit. They're wrought instantaneously. They're wrought simultaneously. There is no uh, time period between one and the other. Uh, They are things that are entirely from the divine side. Uh, We stated when we first began this study that there are hundreds of promises that relate to our future, hundreds of things that relate to heaven, hundreds of things that relate to the eternal state as we dwell with Jesus Christ. There also are, uh, in the period that we call time, uh, there are divine operating assets that God has given us, Uh, that are found in the great and precious promises. A Canadian scholar a number of years ago uh, laid down a a listing of what he felt were the promises that were for the believer in this age. He counted more than 7,000 promises, every one of which is a little bit a part of what, what we have to be able to operate that provide for the Christian victory, uh, provide for the Christian growth, etc., etc. Just uh, an abundance of assets that God has given to us. But previous to all of that, at the point of salvation, the instant you accept Christ as Savior, there are at least 36 things that happen to you. The thing that we found over the years, that as we share this with people, Uh, they begin to have a deeper and fuller appreciation of the salvation wrought by God apart from human merit. And so that's one of the reasons that we decided to uh, begin to explore these things in a little depth and understand them. And so we've talked already about the fact that we are in the eternal plan of God. That's the first of these things. We're in the eternal plan of God. involves five things. involves foreknowledge, election, predestination, It involves the fact that we are indeed chosen of God and that we are called of God. The second thing has to do with what is called reconciliation. And we talked about its meaning and its need, its scope, its agent, its point, that is at the cross, its instrument, the blood of Christ, its ministers. We are all ministers of reconciliation and its results. We're reconciled both by God and to God, taken away from from alienation and brought into friendship. We were impotent, and God has given power, strength. We were ungodly as to our very basic nature, and God changed that basic nature. We were sinners as to our state, and God forgave our sin and gave us sainthood, really, brought into a relationship with him of holiness. We were under condemnation. He's freed us from that. We were enemies, and we have been brought into uh, from a life of restless activity against God into amnity. So we have reconciliation. And then uh, Jack shared with you uh, in my absence a few weeks ago that which had to do with redemption and the fact that we are bought out of the slave market of sin, that we have been set free, and uh, God has given us a wonderful redemption in Jesus Christ. We were dead in trespasses and sins, but he redeemed us 
brought us into, into a new relationship of freedom with him. Now that brings us then to what we are studying at the present moment, and that is the fact that we, one of these 36 things, the fourth one is that we are given freedom from judgment. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And we, we talked about that in a general sense a little bit in the meeting of Katakrima, the whole idea of, of the punishment, the verdict, the decision that God has made uh, in regard to the sinner and the decision that he's made in regard to one that's been forgiven of sin, the fact that we have no condemnation. The judgment is reserved for the unbeliever because of his rejection of Jesus Christ. Now, we talked uh, last time about the fact there's seven major judgments of history, and we talked a little bit about the first major judgment, which was the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're not talking about temporal judgment in the sense uh, of uh, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and the flood and things of that, and that nature. We're talking about, in a very real sense, a final judgment. And the final judgment that came in a judicial sense upon uh, the, uh, that came to the world in terms of all of our sins was the judgment upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ bore our sins. He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And then we said that there is also, uh, the word judgment is used in reference to the self-judgment of believers. That as we come to the table of the Lord, uh, we are to examine ourselves and then so eat of that bread. And we talked a little bit about the judgment that we must have in our own life, agreeing with God concerning our sin, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And 1 John 1, 9 uses the word confess, which is homo legeo. Legeo means to say. Homo means the same. It means to say the same thing as God. The thing that is, that is essential is that we be saying the same thing as God says concerning our sin. Don't, don't uh, uh, be foolish about it in the sense that you, that you, uh, you use uh, uh, softer words or uh, that you use a language that is, is uh, somehow not quite so condemning. God, God used very strong language in regard to our sin. We've got to learn to call sin what God calls sin. People, we live in an age today where people want others to tone down sin. They don't like to face the reality of the awful thing. In fact, they even try to mask the consequences of sin. And uh, you, you can see how people uh, just get so upset uh, when you use terminology that seems to offend. The psychologists are telling us today that you, you don't want to hurt anybody's self-image. Well, God didn't care much about self-image. He, he's concerned about the image of Christ being reproduced in the life. And uh, he does hurt people very deeply and show them guilt uh, when they sin. There's no question about that. Uh, it bothers me a great deal. It really does. Uh, when you have a man like, uh, a godly man like like Isaac Watts and like John Newton and some of these who, who wrote their old hymns, uh, you know, the old hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed and, and uh, did my sovereign die. Uh, and then it goes on and says, He died for such a worm as I. And the thing that bothers me about the modern hymn books is they, they change those words. They, nobody wants to be called a worm. And uh, the, the, the tragedy of it is that when you, when you refuse to identify with a worm, you refuse to identify with Jesus Christ. The psalmist said that in the, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messianic Psalm, said, I am a worm and no man. And the word for worm was what was called the crimson grub. It was a grub, a particular grub that was used for, for, for uh, dyeing the cloth that royal robes were made of. They, would, they actually would take a pail full of these worms and they would squish them. And, and, and then there was a red dye that came from the bodies of these worms and they would, be, they would be crushed and then royal robes were made from this. And Jesus Christ was the worm who was ultimately crushed for our redemption so that we might wear royal robes. And that's the whole picture that Isaac Watts picked up in that hymn. 
And yet today, they just so glibly change it to such a one as I. Why? Because they, nobody's a worm. We shouldn't call each other worms. And yet God sees us as, as, as worms that deserve to be crushed, yet he made Christ a worm for us <laughs> in a very real sense. You see what I mean? It, and men are trying to escape the guilt of sin because they won't come to the cross. And God wants us to be honest with the whole matter of sin and talk honestly about it. I have said often that, that a, a bottle of poison that has a skull and crossbones on it is a whole lot safer and the bottle of poison that says candy on it. And men need to learn scriptural terminology. Script, uh, Christians especially need to use scriptural terminology concerning their sin. You can't water down these things, no matter how you try. And it's only when you say, God, I see you said that's adultery. God, I agree. That's adultery. That's bad. That's wicked. That's an abomination to you. And go right down the line. And it's then, when we've named it, when we, when we have agreed with God concerning our sin, that the promise is true, that he'll forgive and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, that then is the self-judgment of the believer. And personally, I think it's the healthiest thing in the world for us to, to uh, be honest with God concerning our sin, even when we have an argument with God, to say, God, I'm arguing with you. I know it's wrong. It's rebellion. Go ahead, say it. It, it. it doesn't feel as good when you call rebellion. Because what you're saying is, God knows best. And you're rebelling against it. And you're the fool. God comes out being the righteous one that he is. So the self-judgment of believers. And then thirdly, the judgment of believers works. And that's the bema seat, the place that is called the judgment seat of Christ. It was a place of reward. And, by contrast, loss of reward. And so we went through those verses last time and talked about the fact that there would be a time of evaluation at the Bema seat and the fact that we would be we would be rewarded as to whether we've built upon the foundation which is Jesus Christ, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble. It'll be tried by fire. And uh, those who suffer loss will uh, still get to heaven. But there's going to be tremendous loss in that day. Now, there, are, there then are four other judgments. In addition to these three, there is the judgment of the living Jews at the second advent. When Jesus Christ returns to the earth, when he comes back to the earth, not for the uh, church, which is the rapture, actually, the, the way I like to view it, is that the second coming of Christ is in two phases. There is, first of all, the phase, phase one, where the rapture occurs. He does come, but we meet him in the air. And uh, the saints will go to be with Christ, and we will be with him forever from that point on. So he comes for his saints. And then later, Scripture talks about Christ coming back with his saints. And when that's the time where his feet land on the Mount of Olives, it's cleft in twain, a river in the canyon that's caused by that, uh, and uh, uh, he'll enter the city of Jerusalem through that east gate that's closed today. He will set up his millennial kingdom here on earth. And that's going to take place physically here. His first act as the new world emperor, the ultimate emperor, Lord over all the earth, where righteousness will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, and uh, where where uh, he will, uh, the lion will lay down with the lamb, and there will be peace, and uh, he will have a reign of righteousness, a reign which, by the way, is forever and ever, but it's going to have a significant event take place at the end of the thousand-year reign. He will reign here on earth. A significant event will take place. That significant event will uh, be the release of Satan. Uh, and uh, incidentally, and we get sidetracked in this class, so uh, you'll forgive me if I get sidetracked a moment here, but a lot of people ask, um, uh, why in the world, after Christ has reigned on the earth for a thousand years, does he uh, release Satan and have another period of uh, wicked rebellion against his authority? Uh, remember this, that God didn't create Adam a puppet. And in every phase, some people like to refer to them as dispensations, in every dispensation of God's marvelous grace, 
He has always allowed man to choose, to make a choice. And he proves through the various dealings in different ways with men centered in the person of Jesus Christ, who's the central point of history. He, he proves that man apart from God will rebel a hundred times out of a hundred times. That if there is no submission to him, if he is not willing to take God at his word and trust him, you can put him in any kind of an environment you want to put him, and he will rebel every single time. And so you have, in the Garden of Eden, that opportunity, and man rebelled. Then you have, previous to the flood, the, the whole area where, again, man failed. And it's man's failure over and over again. Man simply needs God's grace. Man can't make it on his own. And you see, Satan's lie is that man can make it on his own. That's Satan's lie. That's what he said to Adam and Eve. Hey, you don't, you don't need God. You need this tree. Hey, it's going to be great. Trust me. Now, they trusted him. It wasn't great. They cannot live without God. Uh, we, we'll have to get back sometime here on Wednesday night to our study in the Psalms. We had to break when I got ill, and, and uh, we're just getting back in the saddle in terms of uh, Wednesday nights. But, but uh, we were studying in the Psalms, and one of the things that was coming through loud and clear in almost every Psalm, was the autonomous man. The enemy of David was a man who said, I can make it without God. A man who said, I don't need anybody. The man who says, I'm independent. The man that says, I can I can do it. I'm a self-made man and I'm worshiping my maker. You know, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. But the autonomous man has always been the bugaboo. You listen to people talk today. They want autonomy. They don't even mind being religious as long as they can have autonomy. And when a man when a man comes to the place that he sees God for what he is, for who he is, then that man ultimately is one who will who will have to commit himself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He has no choice. Ultimately he has to do that. Simply because when man when man does it on his own, he always fails. So you have on one hand that you leave man to his own devices and he is going to fail ten times out of ten. And when he fails, that is, when he goes his autonomous way, he is going to be in trouble ten times out of ten. Sooner or later, if, even if it's his very end. And so what God has done is he has tested man in regard to this under every conceivable circumstances, circumstance but one. And that is having Christ physically here in power and great glory. Remember the Jews said if he would have come in power, if he would have come and, and knocked them all dead and just, we would have believed in him. You bet. No way. Because you know what's going to happen? There are no unbelievers that will go into the millennium. Everyone that goes into the millennium are people that have been saved as a result of the evangelistic ministry of the 144,000 during the seven years of tribulation. Every single one will be a believer. But guess what? They're going to have kids. And they're going to have kids in a perfect environment where, there, where Christ is going to reign with a rod of iron. And they will not, the, 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 the law that we're going to live under is law like the Sermon on the Mount is an example. I mean, that's going to be the law of the land. That's the Magna Carta of the kingdom. It's the law we ought to live under now. But, uh, you know, unless Washington decrees it and puts a policeman over our shoulder... Most people aren't going to live that way. But there's going to be, in that day, a, root, a reign of perfect righteousness. And nobody's going to be able to be allowed to rebel. Christ's power is just too great. So what he needs, then, is to show that even though men have been good during the millennial period, Good because they were made to be good. They still are rotten to the core inside. Given a chance, 
they will rebel again unless during that time they have made a personal decision to crown Jesus Christ Lord of their lives. And so there will be unbelievers because there will be some that look at who Jesus Christ is and watch him as he moves in terms of his reigning on earth and begin the old wheels begin to turn and they say, He is my Lord. And they bow before him, not because they're made to bow, but willingly. And in that day, there will be a separation. There will be a separation of those that will follow Satan when he's released for a little time, just a little space of time. And Christ once again proves that the judgment of God was just in condemning men to a Christless eternity because their hearts are wicked. God is vindicated. His judgment is just. And that will prove it finally. And so th there's a plan in all of this. I haven't gone into immense detail with this, but that's the beginning of it. But what there will be is there will be a, there will be Jews that have come to know Jesus Christ at the second advent. When Christ comes again, he will find faith on the earth. There will be some that will be ready. And the, the illustration that Christ used is found over in Matthew chapter 25. You know the story of the five foolish virgins and the five prudent virgins. It says... Then, this is chapter 25 of Matthew. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were foolish and five were prudent. And when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout. Behold the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, saying, No, there will not be enough for us, and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. And later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered and said, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Now, a verse uh, uh, in, in this text where it says, I do, not, I do not know you. In actual fact, the Greek there says, you stand in no relation to me. You stand in no relation to me. You have no relationship with me. That's the idea and the intent and purposes here. And uh, you, you haven't come within the scope of my oida. Oida is the word for, uh, for uh, personal, um, uh, insightful perception. Uh, you, you aren't, in other words, one of those that is a part of the chosen. Now what this, this text is doing, and without going into great elaborate detail, uh, I think it's important to note that what Christ is saying is that there will be some that will that will uh, appear the same as the others, but they lack something. And what they lack is the oil. What they lack is the ingredient that makes the difference between one who is truly born of the Spirit and one who is not. And you may not be able to tell a whole lot of difference looking at, uh, at two sets of people. And these, now, by the way, the church is not on earth. You understand that? We're talking about at the end of the tribulation period and the second coming of the Lord, and the Lord will at that time separate the foolish virgins from the wise virgins, and the, the wise virgins, of course, will be, enter into the wedding time, which you see is a picture. Christ is returning with his bride. They're going to have the reception. Uh, the, the wedding uh, feast takes place in heaven, but the celebration, the reception takes place here on earth. The bride is, of course, the church, and uh, the, the groom is Jesus Christ himself, and they're coming to celebrate. And the celebration is for those that are here on earth, still alive, who are indeed, um, have come through that tribulation, and they have washed their, their, their garments. Now, uh, another text that talks about this is in the next part where it talks about the 
five to one talents. It says, for it's just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. And one he gave five talents to another two, to another one, each according to his own ability, and went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went, traded with them, gained five more talents in the same manner. The one who had received the two talents gained the two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who had received the two talents came and said, Master, you have entrusted me two talents. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who had received the one talent came and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. I was afraid and went away, hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. The master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow, gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from you, and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has shall more be given, and he and he shall have an abundance. But from he, the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away and cast out the worthless slave into outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, incidentally, let me pause here a moment. I don't want to take away the value of a good parable like that and the kinds of applications that we make in this age. In other words, that we ought to make the most of what God has given us. And there's nothing wrong with that application. It's a perfectly legitimate one. But in actual fact, Matthew 24 and 25 is dealing with end-time events. It's looking down the pike, looking at the second at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, looking at the time where he returns with his saints back to the earth. The church is not in view here. It is that which is happening in terms of those that are that have come through the tribulation. Some of them saints, some of them sinners, and uh, and the the one who makes investments and does with what he has during that period of time will be recognized with special reward. And those who who are wicked and slothful and who fail uh, to to uh, demonstrate their commitment to the Lord and the expectation of His return, they're going to be dealt with in judgment. Now, another text that deals with a similar kind of thing is in Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20. All of these have to do with Jewish terminology and pictures. It has to do with the Jewish, uh, the Jewish judgment. There will be a Jewish judgment uh, that will have to do with the living Jews at the time of the second advent. And here in Ezekiel chapter 20, Beginning in verse 22, you read these words. But I withdrew my hand and acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, in whose sight I had brought them out. Also I swore to them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them among the lands. These are promises concerning the Jews, promises in this case of scattering or judgment. Because they had not observed my ordinances, they had rejected my statutes, and had profaned my Sabbaths, and their eyes were on the idols of their fathers. And I also gave them statutes that were not good, and ordinances by which they could not live. And I pronounced them unclean because of their gifts, in that it caused all their firstborn to pass through the fire, so that I might make them desolate, in order that they might know that I am the Lord. Verse 26 is talking about the practice of offering child sacrifices to Moloch, a wicked, wicked idol, wicked god. And he did all this that they may know that I am the Lord. Therefore, son of man, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Yet in this your fathers have blasphemed me by acting treacherously against me. When I had brought them into the land which I swore to give them, then they saw every high hill and every leafy tree, and they offered there their sacrifices. And there they presented 
the provocation of their offerings, and there also they made their soothing aroma, and there they poured out their libations, and so on. Now, this is a text that is promising to the people that they are going to have a day of reckoning. There will be a time where there is going to be the day of reckoning for their wickedness and for their sin. Now, in Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 13, we have another picture. These are the judgments coming, and there are judgments, and I'd only selected one Old Testament passage there to talk about the judgment of the Jews, but look at what it says in Matthew 13 and verse 24. He presented another parable to them, saying, The king of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. While men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landholder came and said, Sir, did did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy hath done this. And the slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? And he said, No. Lest while you're gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat also with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barns. Now, once again, I want to say that uh, there's a there's good application of these parables to the church in the sense that the church can, the church is indeed a mixed body but technically speaking it's speaking again of the the time of the judgment where the wheat and the tares are growing together where you may not be able to tell too much difference and the reaping time comes the time of the sickle coming over the grain is the time of the inn, and again, a picture of of judgment. Now, there's a host of other texts that can be tied together that substantiate all of this even more more fully, but the picture is that there will be a, a definite time of judgment to separate professors from possessors at the time that the living Jews are judged. And then, the fourth judgment is the judgment of the living Gentiles that happens at the, at the final uh, time of judgment. For this, we go back again to the Olivet Discourse and Matthew chapters 24 and 25. First of all, chapter 25 and verse 14. 25 and, uh, excuse me, verse 31. This now is the judgment of the the Gentiles, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory, in his splendor, when he comes with the saints and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, Gentiles that survive the tribulation with all of its uh, uh, death and pain and agony uh, are going to be be separated and uh, there is going to be a specific way that God will know, although he knows because he's omniscient, he knows all things, but there's a special way by which he will separate the true groupings, the sheep from the goats. And the way he will separate is by the treatment of the tribulation saints. There will be people during that tribulation period, a great host of them, a host that no man can number, the book of Revelation tells us. 144,000 evangelists are doing a good job of evangelism all over the world. One of the neat things about the 144,000 is that they're going to be missionaries, 12,000 from every tribe of Israel, 144,000 in all. They are going to be able... Uh, to, they're going to be sealed, so they're not going to, nobody's going to be able to kill them. The Antichrist is not going to be able to touch them. That's one good thing. Wouldn't you like to go to the mission field and be sealed? Uh, but they're not just going to go to the mission field. They're going to already be there. We have Jews scattered all over the world. And they don't even know what tribe they're from. But God knows. He's got it all sorted out. And uh, they're going to, at the time of the rapture, they're, by a miracle, they're going to be saved. And they're going to be protected. They're going to be sealed. And they already know the language because they're already in the land, wherever they are. They'll be in Germany and they'll be in Russia and they'll be, uh, you know, some of these people, everybody, all the Jews are trying to get out of Russia. They're not all going to get out. There are going to be some there. 
and they're going to evangelize. Seven years, they're going to be cut loose, and they're going to win a host of people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful thing. And those people are going to be tortured for their faith. The mark of the beast and all of those good things, they're going to be tortured. And in the midst of it, they're going to be Gentiles who are going to have faith in Jesus Christ. Too late, they've already got the mark of the beast. They've already, they've already uh, uh, been, been uh, involved and will be in political places and all of that kind of thing. And they are going to demonstrate their faith in a very special way by the way that they treat the suffering saints during the tribulation. They're going to come to know Christ and they are going to, the Gentile gatherings of people, some of them will refuse to have anything to do with the saints. Now, one of the things that you could have told pretty well in a place like Germany, as an example. I imagine that uh, in Lebanon, to some degree, we have the same kind of thing, uh, where, where the people who are willing to risk their lives to save the people that were being persecuted so often were people that were born again, people who really loved the Lord, people like the Ten Booms in Holland, as an example. And so uh, this is the picture that will take place. Again, there's some good application of the way we ought to treat people uh, here. But the primary purpose of this is that when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and that has to be the second advent, then all the nations gathered, and the, the, the shepherd will separate the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and came to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say unto you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, these would be the Jews in the tribulation, even the least of them, you did it to me. All right? Now, that's not salvation by works. It's just a salvation that works. All right? Faith without works is dead. There is a demonstration in the life of these people. God is not going to judge them because they were nice to somebody or gave to charity. That's not the, the issue. The issue is they risked their own lives demonstrating that their faith was real, that they had a real relationship with him. And in that day, it may be the only way one could tell. This was something that really separated the sheep from the goats or separated the men from the boys or whatever you want to say, all right? So then in verse 41, and he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in naked. And you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they say, also, they themselves also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous... Notice, it's the righteous, the other group, into eternal life. So here you have the separation of the sheep and the goats among the Gentiles, those that provided for those in need. Now, mind you, again, good application of that is that we demonstrate our faith by that kind of conduct as well. And, uh, and, and I think that we can take a good lesson from that. But this isn't a social picture. You've got to realize the people in that day that did not take the mark of the beast could not buy, they could not sell, they could not make a living, they, they, were, they were destitute. Somebody had to care for them or none of them would have survived. And the ones that took care of them were those, uh, like so often in the various times of tribulation, those that perhaps had some degree of influence and who had their position secured because they earlier had taken the mark of the beast and they demonstrated they indeed were true believers by that which they did. Matthew 24 then, back to Matthew 24 and verse 37. It says something else of that day. 
it says, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Now once again, this isn't the rapture. This is the time of judgment. And of course, the the picture of Noah was that here eight people walked into that ark. And here all the time the ark was building, this man was a preacher of righteousness. He told people, God is going to rain. They said, come on. It's never rained. The earth was watered from beneath. There was a, a heavy dew kind of thing, and the earth was covered with a canopy, it appears, and all of those things. And the result was that the people didn't even know what rain was. And it's going to rain. And the people didn't believe him. God says the judgment's going to come from the earth. They didn't believe him. God says that he's going to take us into that ark, and that's our only chance. They didn't believe him. He was able to do what a lot of people can't do, and that is convert his own family. Noah got his wife, got his sons, got his daughters-in-law. All eight souls were in the ark. When the door was shut, it was then that they began to understand, this is serious. It was too late. It was too late. That's the way it'll be. Now I'm going to spoil another verse for you here. In verse 40 and 41, this also is not talking about the rapture. How many messages have you heard on these verses talking about one shall be taken, the other shall be left? It's talking here about taking someone in judgment, not taking them to heaven. Then there shall be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other one left. Now, I've got to tell you something. You've got to get this verse straight. Because you want to be, if you were in this scenario, you want to be left. Understand? Because the taken means taken in judgment. So you want to be left. And the way it's usually preached is, one's going to be taken, that's the rapture, and the other will be left, they'll be left for the tribulation. Be careful of that verse, as it's misinterpreted a lot. But to see, the whole picture here is of that, of the coming of the Lord back to earth, the second coming. And at that time, again, there'll be a separation of those that are, are believers from unbelievers. One will be taken and... Uh, put to judgment, which will be the final uh, time of, of casting into the lake of fire, and one will be left for millennial blessing, and so on. So that's the fifth judgment, which is the judgment of the living Gentiles at the time of the second advent. So we have the major judgment of history, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, where he bore judgment in himself. We have the self-judgment of believers. We have the judgment of believers' works. We have the judgment of the living Jews at the second advent, the, the, the living Gentiles at the second advent. There's another one, and that's the judgment of the fallen angels, Satan and the fallen angels. It's referred to in Matthew 25, verse 41. We mentioned it a moment ago in our reading. It says, Then he will say also to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Now that's elaborated on a little bit in Revelation chapter 20. If you'll go there with me, Revelation chapter 20. And this is not a class on prophecy, so that's why I'm hurrying over these things rather than, than uh, uh, going into, into great detail. But, uh, by the way, I, I got a letter today, a newsletter thing, and in it was uh, this particular newsletter deals with prophetic subjects. And uh, the letter uh, was canceling the subscription uh, to this prophetic paper. It deals mainly with the signs of the times and things that are happening that, that to keep people current on uh, events that might be helpful in their study of prophecy. And the lead letter in the in the magazine uh, said, "Please cancel my description, my my uh, subscription." It said, uh, "I was so disappointed." Now that this paper, by the way, uh, refuted. Uh, this uh, book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Has to Occur in Rosh Hashanah in 1988, but it, it, the letter said, I'm giving up my 16-year study of prophecy. I'm terribly disillusioned because 
uh, Christ didn't come on that date, so on and so on and so on. I uh, went on to talk about how the, uh, the person had been an avid reader of everything that dealt with prophetic subjects, and he'd fallen for that thing, hook, line, and sinker, and he was ready for the coming of Christ on that day, and it didn't come. And it, what, what the title said was, 88 Reasons Why You Shouldn't Set Dates. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was very, very good. But, you know, it's tragic, isn't it, that people uh, that were disillusioned in that thing, some of them have almost lost their faith, and it's tragic. But uh, prophecy is a good pursuit. But I, what I was saying was that I'm not, uh, we're not studying prophecy per se here, so that's why I'm slipping over some of this very, very quickly. Another time, another day, we can talk about it more in detail. But in verse 7 of Revelation 20, it says, And when the thousand years are completed... Satan will be released from his prison, something I referred to a moment ago, and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them together for the war, and the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. There will be a lot of people. And they shall come up in the broad plain of the earth, surround the camp of the saints, and the beloved city, and fire shall come down from heaven, devour them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Anybody that believes in soul sleep ought to read that verse. Because it said that those that would be cast in Matthew 24, those that would be cast would be cast into the same place with the Satan and his angels. Here it says that that's going to be a torment, day and night, forever and ever. Remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus. They both went to Hades, but there were two compartments in Hades at that time. There was the one compartment that was called Abraham's bosom, and it was a place of, of it was called paradise, a place of, of wonder and glory, not heaven but a place of waiting uh, where ultimately they would be taken into heaven. And uh, the other side, though, was a place called torments. And uh, we believe that, that uh, torments was made up of two compartments. There was what Scripture refers to as Tartarus, where the confined angels who left their first estate are going to be found. And Christ, when he, when he died on the cross, he went to paradise. He led captivity captive so that paradise is no longer there. It's now in glory with God. But he also preached to the souls that were in Tartars. Preached to the, the angels that were confined there. I've got my own theories about who those angels are. But the, the point is that this place called Torments apparently is going to exist for all of eternity and Satan and his angels are going to be there forever and ever. There's no escape from that. And those that have chosen the way of autonomy rather than the way of God are going to be found there. And so this is the sixth judgment, the judgment of Satan and his angels. But that leaves us then one more. There's a great body of people that we have omitted. We, we know that there's blessing for Old Testament saints. We know that there's blessing for New Testament saints. We know that there's a blessing for tribulation saints. We know that, the, that, that those that were uh, in the tribu that, that were uh, during the tribulation were remained unbelievers, did not come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We know where they're going to be. We know where the, where the Jews are going to be that did not believe in Jesus Christ. But there's one great body of people that we haven't touched on yet, and that is the great host of Gentile and Jewish unbelievers throughout all of history. And that's where we come to the great white throne judgment, which is, in terms of condemnation, is indeed the, uh, the finale as far as the world is concerned. Satan is cast into that lake of fire. And then in Revelation 20, beginning in verse 11, it says, And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. No hiding there. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. 
This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, let me talk about that for a moment. I think there's some very particular things that are important, and then a final conclusion. First of all, let me say that these sinners from all the ages past are going to stand before God, and God, who is always just, is going to give them every opportunity to vindicate themselves. That's my personal conviction, based upon 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2, where it says, And he, Christ, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. That effectively, Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, made possible the salvation of the whole world. That is, he took care of the sin problem. Uh, there's nothing after the, after the cross that had to be added to atone for sins. It's done totally, completely, and absolutely. Sin is not the issue at the great white throne judgment. Christ bore our sins on the, uh, in his body on the tree. Sin has been cared for. Sin has been, uh, the guilt of sin, the penalty of sin, has been paid once and for all. If this weren't true, then at some point in history, there would have to be another way of salvation. Another way for a man to, to somehow pull himself up by his bootstraps. Jesus Christ had took care of the sin problem as far as the past was concerned, fulfilling all of the types of the Old Testament, all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament. And he, 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 he extended that atonement into the future. It's not really atonement. Atonement means covering. He didn't cover. He took away the sins of the world. All right? So atonement is a theological catchword now. We understand what it means, but we should never confuse it with the cover, the covering in the Old Testament. And uh, the uh, Yom Kippur, by the way, is the day of atonement, the day of covering. When sin was covered, but the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. He took away sin, all right? He's dealt with the sin problem. The, the only thing that remains is what will you do with Jesus Christ? But you see, there is a theory on earth that is quite widespread, perpetuated by Satan himself, that... If a person has been bad, that he can somehow do enough good and outweigh the bad and therefore escape the judgment. That when God sees all that I have done, he is going to see this pile of good things that I have accomplished, and he is going to say, wow, you know, you're not so bad after all. Now that's the theory. That's straight from the pit. The fact is that man can have millions of good works. Millions of them. And not so bad, bad works. And he still will go to hell. Because you see, the issue here is his deeds, not his sins. Ever notice that? It doesn't say here, it doesn't say that uh, the books were opened and another uh, book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things and were written in the books according to their sins. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say iniquities. It doesn't say transgressions. It says their deeds. What man will do in, his, in seeking his vindication, he will stand before God and say, you know, what a good boy am I. Look at me. Do you see this? God, you forget. I gave to these charities. I even went to church twice. You know? I mean, he'll, he'll, he'll have the whole list, and, and God will have it. Checklist. And I think God is just patient enough that he'll let him rattle off the whole list. When he gets to the bottom, and looks at God kind of smugly, and, and in essence saying, I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. I, I did it. I did it. You've got to say yes. Look at all I've got here. And do you know what God will do? God will open another book. That's the only one that counts. The, the other book. It's the other book. He's got the book that has all of the deeds, everything that these guys have done. And I think because Christ has already taken care of the sin problem, God's not going to list the sins there. He's going to list all the good things. Man doesn't realize so often that 
his good things are as condemning as his bad things. <laughs> I think sometimes we get all uh, we get all off uh, when we try to lead people to Christ, and we start talking about, well, now do you know you're a sinner? Now, uh, uh, you know, have you ever stolen anything? And we start going on all of the things that we think are real baddies. You know what one of the worst things that a man can do is? To think that his good works, to be so proud and vain that he would think his good works could veil anything with God. That's probably far worse than whether he's murdered somebody. But the greatest sin of all is to reject the only provision that God has made. And why would he, why would he ever reject the only provision God has made? Because he thinks he's got enough. And he doesn't. And whosoever's name is not written in the Lamb's book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Man can never build up enough good works. That's why, I'll tell you something, that's why uh, Mormonism is so damning. That's why uh, so many of the cults are so damning. That's why things even like the Masonic Lodge is so damning. Because you see, the, uh, the Masonic Lodge makes a guy think that he is good enough somehow. And, and you know, I, I, I always insist, if I participate, and I don't even like to participate, but if somebody insists that I participate in a Masonic Lodge funeral, I always ask to say the last words. I want my part totally separate from the other, but I want to follow them. I don't want to do it first. But after they get done standing up there rattling on about how all the good things they did, then I stand up and tell them they're all wet. That in essence, they, that they have condemned themselves by what they've said because they have said that indeed he did enough good that he's going to go across the great divide into glory. And there is nothing good that a man can do to take him across the great divide into glory. Not a single thing, not a single work. I had a privilege you know, years ago... Uh, about a couple of years ago, I guess I remember sharing it with Jack. Um, and uh, but uh, I'd been somebody in our church had a father that died, and I had had the privilege of leading him to Christ just days before his death. A man over 70 years of age, and we led him to Christ in the hospital. And uh, he admitted that uh, he he wasn't good enough, you know, that no, none of his good works could prevail. That Jesus Christ had saved him. I had no idea he was a Mason. But I dealt with him that way, and it was amazing because I had a testimony in my hip pocket. I went and saw him two days before he died, and uh, he shared his testimony with me and said, You know, uh, ever since I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ, I've had an assurance that I'm finally there. You know, And I stood before those guys, and I said, There's something you don't know about this man. He played all your games. He did all your stuff. But I'll tell you something. He's in heaven today, but not because he was good enough. He's in heaven today and not in hell because he knew that those things could never save. Of course, the neat thing about that is you got every businessman in town out for those funerals, you know. They show up, and uh, boy, I'll tell you, I love to preach the gospel. chaplain uh, got so mad that he wouldn't even speak to me afterward, but I didn't really care. I, was, I felt so triumphant because <laughs> I had a good testimony of what Christ could do. The judgment of the unbelievers, they are judged on the basis of their deeds, not on the basis of their sins, but they are, they, the other book is what makes the difference. It doesn't even refer again to the books that were opened with all of their deeds. It says that they were judged, everyone according to their deeds, and whosoever's name was not written in the Lamb's book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. All right, final comment. The thing that is wonderful is that there will not be a single believer in Jesus Christ there. Not a one. Why? Well, that's the wonderful thing God has done. Finally reached that point after going around all the way through this. And that is, there is therefore now no condemnation. None whatsoever. That happened the instant you were saved. You were placed in a position where we are justified before God, where we are seen legally as being vindicated not on the basis of our merit but on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ and because of his death on the cross nothing of your merit but his death on the cross 
us. We're placed in a position where we're free from condemnation. All right. Come again next week and bring somebody with you. Thank you, Father, for your goodness and love. We thank you for the privilege of just knowing that we are free from condemnation. No condemnation now I dread. Oh, Lord, thank you for that. We know, Lord, that it's on Christ, the solid rock we stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. Thank you. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.